Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Happy that you're joining us this weekend. Happy that you're joining me this weekend. We are continuing our sermon series entitled Lenten Ironies, and uh, so we're looking at, at some of those things that are ironic, but also some of the things that are just kind of counterintuitive uh, during the last hours and days of Jesus' life, and today is no different. We're going to look at uh, the concept of truth. So when Jesus comes in face-to-face with a man named Pontius Pilate, we're going to kind of pull apart that concept of, of truth, but ultimately put it back together in Jesus. And so our theme is going to be transformative truth, and we're going to find Christ right in the middle of that. So uh, there are probably lots of nursery rhymes that maybe you know, but this is one that I think maybe the world knows. Humpty Dumpty, fill in the blank, right? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do what? Put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? It's a pretty famous nursery rhyme, and it's one that maybe even as I started out, your mind already finished it off. Um, And and like all of these nursery rhymes, or I should say like most of these nursery rhymes, they have kind of a couple things in common. Number one, it feels as though almost all of them come from the Brits, like from from Britain, somewhere in like the 16 to 1800s. And number two, uh, they're all a little bit creepy and have like double meanings and things. And so literally every nursery rhyme that I ever learned growing up as an adult, I kind of pull apart and think, okay, is that actually what they're talking about? And, and Humpty Dumpty is a kind of a fascinating one in the, the back and forth that it's taken to its present day form. Uh, there are multiple kind of competing theories about how that Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme came about. Uh, Some say that it was actually the name of a cannon in the 1600s and that it was damaged up on a a castle wall, uh, that the the cannon fell to the ground uh, and and shattered and it was never able to be put back again. So uh, as an instrument of war, some have said that that it was um, an allusion to monarchy and monarchs, kings and queens, that as they lost their titles and lost their kingdoms, that they, they tumbled to the ground never to be put back together again. But probably where Humpty Dumpty became most popularized, or I I would say most cemented in our collective mind, was through an author named Lewis Carroll, who wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland, and the sequel, Through the Looking Glass. So uh, the character of Humpty Dumpty, in its first uh, egg shape and form, which you probably will see on the screen in front of you, that first came about in that book, Through the Looking Glass, from Lewis Carroll. And, And that 
um, um, concept of Humpty Dumpty was really fascinating what that author did with him because uh, first off, he, he took a character and a nursery rhyme that was already kind of in the zeitgeist of the world around us. So it was already around and there were different tunes that went along with it and, and different variations of it, but it was already kind of floating around there. And so uh, he took that concept of Humpty Dumpty and he actually uh, formatted it and made it a, an actual character in his book, which I think is just absolutely fascinating that that he was able to grab something that was out there and and, and codify it into his book. But he did something even more than with that character because um, he not only put an image to it, but then it that Humpty Dumpty character's interaction with Alice in Through the Looking Glass further kind of pulled apart uh, some of the the preconceptions of what Humpty Dumpty is, and most specifically, that concept of words having some kind of, uh, of objective meaning and truth to them. And so in Through the Looking Glass, there's this interaction between Alice and Humpty Dumpty, and Alice is trying to get to the truth. She's trying to get to some sensible meaning from this character, Humpty Dumpty, and very quickly we see that Humpty Dumpty has no interest in truth or meaningful interaction because um, his only desire is to be in control regardless of what words say or words actually mean. And so here's a quote from the, from the book. It says this, Humpty Dumpty speaks first. He says, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That's all. And so you understand a little bit this interaction that's going on there. Alice is trying to, trying to get to the bottom of things and actually understand what Humpty Dumpty is talking about. And Humpty Dumpty says, it makes no difference what words I use. The only thing that matters is that I am the master of them. I can change words to suit my situation and my meaning at will. It's a fascinating nursery rhyme. It's a fascinating story. But... It's amazing that it's probably a pretty good descriptor of our modern American cultural culture and society around us. That concept of truth having been just pulled asunder, or rather that truth is what you make of it. Truth is you lining up all your fact sources versus my truth where I line up all my fact sources and then you throw in an extra helping of passion and desire behind it and all of a sudden you have truth that uh, seems to be relative to the situation. Studies, lots of them that are out there, you probably have heard many of them, have shown this to be true. By nearly a three-to-one margin, uh, adults in America believe that truth is absolutely relative. So about 64% to 22%, that there's no such thing as truth, that it is relative to your situation around us. And it's not just a, that concept of situational ethics, but it's even gone to the point where this is now situational morality, right? Where the very foundations of how we treat people, how we view the world around us, and what we hold near and dear is completely based on your situation and on our own choice. On a lot of levels, it's turned into kind of a Humpty Dumpty world. The only thing that matters to many within our society is that we become masters of truth and words and facts. But that's what we want to look into today.
Because how does that line up with how scripture and what scripture tells us about Jesus Christ? Um, because there, there's always this truth that the Bible is giving us, us um, um, eternal truths. So truths that ultimately underlie the reality that we exist in, that we live in. And you kind of think about it this way, that these are, these are truths that are true across generations and across time, even as the culture around us changes and the winds of that culture shift and move. And so uh, whenever we go to scripture, we want to look at um, what is God telling us at our deepest core about ourselves and about our world. And he does that today in this remarkable interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And so our theme uh, is going to be simply that transformative truth. That's what we want to look at. That's what we want to find. That's what we have in our text here today. Now, uh, before we jump into that text, we got to do just a little bit of the scene setting of what is taking place here. As we're going through Jesus' last hours and days and weeks of his life, um, this is the point where he is brought before the governor of Jerusalem and Judea at that time named Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate was a, a quintessential politician. So he had kind of a rough track record. Um, Pilate's only job was to keep Rome happy and Caesar happy. And Rome and Caesar were happy when a couple things were happening. Number one, taxes kept flowing. So people kept paying taxes to the Roman Empire. Number two, that there weren't any revolts. And so those two are both intimately connected. And Pilate had kind of a rocky past. There had been revolts with the Jewish people. Um, many have said that the Jewish people at this time were, were really hard to govern, which you cannot blame them, right? Uh, and so Pilate is kind of at peak politician mode because he knows that his post uh, in Jerusalem is, is maybe a little bit tenuous. And if he ever wants to work his way back up and literally work his way back to Rome, up the political ladder, um, he's got to keep the peace in Jerusalem. And so Pilate's here and these religious leaders come to Pilate and bring with them a man that they claim is, is claiming to be king. Now, if Pilate is a political animal in the secular Roman sense, these religious leaders are political animals in a uh, cloaked in a religious or spiritual sense. Because do you remember what happens with these religious leaders, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, those that were persecuting Jesus? The, the first charge that they bring up against Jesus is blasphemy. So they say he's blasphemous. He's speaking against our God above. Therefore, he should be put to death. That was the first charge. But what you'll notice now is in our text, when they bring him before Pilate, what do they do? Well, they check which way the political winds are blowing, and they know that Pilate's not going to care anything. He was secular, right? An unbeliever. He's not going to care anything about blasphemy because he doesn't even believe in God. And so when they bring him to Pilate, they check the political winds and they say, okay, Pilate, this man is claiming to be king. So he's challenging you and he's possibly challenging Caesar. So this is verging on treason. Therefore, he should be put to death. And so in the midst of our lesson today, you see all kinds of people whose, whose only goal was to become their own masters and continually were checking which way the winds were blowing and adjusting their morality, their words, and their truths to the situation that they had in front of them. Their only goal was that Jesus must be put to death. And so they shifted according to that. And so it's into the midst of that that we get this interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And so let's jump into our text. I'm going to read for you 
Today, uh, we're going to kind of jump to verses 33 through 36, and then we'll read verses 37 through 38. And I want to look at two different things when we, we look at that concept of, of transformative truth. If we want truth that transforms us, there are two things that Jesus brings out in our text here today. Number one, transformative truth is always personal. So it's never ethereal. It's always personal. We're going to look at that. Number two, it's always restorative. So it actually helps, it actually fixes, it actually heals. So transformative truth is personal and it's also restorative. That's what we want to look at. That's where we're headed in our text here today. So let's jump into it. I'm going to read verses 33 through 36 for you. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And two kind of really fascinating things happen in this. Pilate interacts with Jesus. And Pilate asks the simple question, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response is, Is that your own idea? And I've always found that just a little bit of an interesting response from Jesus. And, and on its surface, here's what Jesus is saying. He says, um, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is that your own idea? And the easy answer is no, it's not his own idea because the Jews had brought Jesus to Pilate. The Jews themselves said that Jesus was claiming to be king. And so um, on its surface, that's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, um, did someone just kind of plant that idea in your mind? But what's really fascinating, I think at a much deeper level is Jesus isn't just saying where you spoon fed that question, but on some level, he is making it personal to Pilate. So here's the governor of all of Judea in that, that area. And Jesus says, and all I can imagine is looks him straight in the eyes and says, is that your own idea. And so you see what Jesus is doing. There's accusations, there's things going on, all of this stuff, and Pilate is a political animal, but what does Jesus do? And he actually does this consistently throughout his entire ministry. He goes right to the heart of the person that's in front of him. In this instance, it's Pilate. Pilate, is that your idea? Right? I think that's fascinating, and I think it's instructive for us because Jesus always goes to the heart of things. Transformative truth in Christ always makes it personal. Now, what's equally fascinating is Pilate doesn't fall for it, right? You kind of wish that he would, that he would have engaged Jesus on a personal level and, and asked more questions and said, what is really going on here? And who are you actually? You would have hoped that Pilate would have said, okay, I'm going to take that step and move closer. Uh, the real amazing thing is, is that Pilate doesn't. He's too savvy of a politician. Do you notice that he just sidesteps it? He says, am I a Jew? Pilate replied. So Jesus tries to personalize it. What does Pilate do? Pilate blows it out, right? Brings it back out and says, am I a Jew? I'm not an ethnic Jew, right? Your people brought, right? So he backs right out of it. Um, so he kind of adeptly sidesteps the, personal, the personal um, nature of Jesus' question. Uh, unfortunately, it's to his detriment, right? But Pilate is a good politician, so he doesn't fall for, uh, in a sense, fall for Jesus trying to personalize it. He just backs it back out and redirects, right? But that brings up kind of that fascinating interaction that we have now between Pilate and Jesus. 
Jesus, who is, who is ultimately and intimately personal. Pilate, who wants nothing more than to be abstract and ethereal. I think that's the same struggle that we often find in our world as well, isn't it? Um, things always sound better on paper than they actually do in practice. And that's really what we're running into here when we talk about that concept of truth, right? We say, well, there really is no truth. And all of us uh, have grown up in this uh, postmodern world where truth is relative. And we've heard that. And if you're younger, you've never done anything or known anything other than living that. Um, there was a, a, an article that I read with a college professor. They said the only truth that, that uh, is, is, um, that is absolutely true is that every time incoming freshmen come in is that they believe that they there absolutely is no truth and they are they are completely autonomous in making their choices on what is real and what is not right and so we live in this this postmodern world where truth is absolutely relative and in fact morality is absolutely relative but at some point when truth is relative it falls on its own sword doesn't it Because what is true to you at some point is going to come into conflict with what is true to me. That's just the reality of it. And I think that's the idea of of truth on paper versus truth in practice. And if you want examples of that coming into conflict, conflict, you've probably felt it in your life, right? We talk about politicians. How many politicians have, have created laws that are intended to help a certain group of people? only to find out when they're put into practice, it actually hurt the very people they were hoping to help, right? That's that concept of great in the abstract and on paper and in in arguments, right, on Congress and Senate floors, but incredibly terrible in actual practice in the lives of the people that it's going to impact. Well, we've seen that in our lives as well. When we make um, moral choices, when we make our own choices on what is good and what is right and what is wrong, they almost invariably sound good in the abstract. But when they get into practice, that's when it becomes difficult. Our modern age calls this the autonomous choosing self. And so there is this vast um, shift that has happened, especially in the last 50 years. Um, that, that we now, every single one of us, see ourselves as this autonomous choosing self, that we have absolutely no responsibility to anyone around us. So to put it simply, um, it just means that we are the kings and the masters of our own fate, a little bit like Humpty Dumpty, right? We are in control, and whatever we decide, what I decide, my truth, it, it makes no difference for anybody else, that I am allowed to be autonomous and choose. But how often and how well does that work? Well, not that great. In fact, most of the world's history, no one has operated that way because your choices absolutely affect the people around you. And that's where it goes from the abstract to the very personal. The choices that you make absolutely have an impact on the world around you. It impacts uh, your people. It impacts your ethnicity. It impacts um, your political persuasion. It impacts your community. But let's, that, even that's too abstract right out there. You've got to bring it in very personal. It, it impacts the people that are in your lives, the, God, the people that God has placed into your lives. It impacts your loved ones. The moral choices you make have impact on the people around you, on your children, on your grandchildren, on your tribe or your, your sphere or your pod or whatever you want to call it. But 
the choices you make absolutely have an impact either for the good or for the bad on the people around you. And so this myth of an autonomous choosing self just does not work. Over and over and over again, it falls on its own sword. Because the choices we make, the moral choices we make, have an impact on the people around us and in turn on the culture and the world in which we live. I think all of us would like to think that that's not true. But we know that it is. Because you've been hurt by people that have made moral choices, that have made um, decisions in their best interest, but not in yours. I'm, my guess is you would have um, countless examples of people um, that, that have made choices that have hurt you intimately. Sometimes you may think even irreparably. That's the problem of no absolute truth or just making up our morality as we go. Here's the other problem. Those choices and that morality and who we are changes. You know it does. The things you valued at age 20 versus age 30 versus age 50 versus age 70 and those of you that, that are, are 80 and above, the things that you value and how you see your world have changed vastly during all those times. And so, so um, the things that we value and the choices we make change over time. We know that. We've seen that in our short lives. But here's the good news about this, this kind of postmodern truth is relative type things. You know who doesn't change is our God above. And the realities that he's, he has put in place in our world and in fact in you. And so your preferences, your characteristics may change across your life, but your essence doesn't. Let me use a, a really simple example. Um, when I was younger, I had more hair than this. It wasn't just a forehead, um, and that has now turned into a five head, but I actually had more hair. And yet, I'm the same person. In another 20 years, my guess is the hair that I have left is going to be largely gray, but I will be the same person, and so will you. Some of our characteristics may change, and even some of our hobbies and the things we like and don't like, right? But your essence doesn't change. Who you are as a person, your value, how God made you, and how, uh, um, um, how much he values you does not change. And so your essence remains the same, even though some of our characteristics may change over a lifetime. Now, here's why that's good news. It's because you are rooted in something that is far bigger than yourselves, far bigger than your nation and your culture and this, this particular moment. God has created you for a purpose. God made you and knew who you were and knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows when you would be born. He knows when you will die and go to heaven. Um, your God above knows you at your essence. That's the truth about our world. Pilate didn't see it. But I pray that we do, I pray that you do, that there is real truth. It comes from our God above as our creator. Right? And so transformative truth cannot just be this abstract thought out there. Transformative truth is personal. And you personally have value, you have meaning because your God above has imbued you with that. We call that the image of God. That is why every life 
no matter skin color, ethnicity, nation, or political persuasion has value because our God above has put that in place. That personal truth is what Jesus was trying to get across to Pilate. He sidestepped it to his detriment. But brothers and sisters, let's not do that. Let's understand that God has created us with value and for purpose. But that brings us to the second aspect, and I would argue the more important aspect of this transformative truth, that uh, that transformative truth ultimately is restorative. So let's continue in our text. I want to read verses 37 and 38. Pilate says, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. So again, a fascinating uh, um, interaction between Pilate and Jesus. So Pilate is, is raising the question again, you're claiming to be king. Jesus quickly personalizes and actually takes it to a far deeper level. And he says, actually, um, my kingdom's not of this world, but what I do stand for is truth and is reality, right? Jesus says, there are things that are true and that are beneficial for you and for this world. And I literally am that as I stand in front of you. And Pilate's response is, what is truth? basically the Humpty Dumpty response, right? Jesus says it's, that's the exact opposite of why he came. He said, I have come to testify not only to truth, but to the truth. And that's the important part of what transformative truth is. It's restorative. Pilate didn't see it, but truth stood before him in the person of Jesus Christ. And he does for you and I as well. We talked about all of our characteristics um, and the things that, that can kind of change over our lives. But we could probably also say all of the things that we've done, some things we would be very proud of, some things we would not be very proud of. But Jesus died not only for all of those things, but also for our essence and who you are. That's the truth of who was standing in front of Pilate. Jesus Christ was about to die, not because of Pilate or the religious leaders, but because he was willingly walking to the cross to lay down his life on that cross for you and I so that our sins would be forgiven, so that you could be restored, you would be restored in Him. And do you need some of that restoration? I would guess you do. Do you feel a little bit like Humpty Dumpty, not sitting up on the wall, but the Humpty Dumpty that had a great fall? Broken, fractured, shattered? I think if you're anything like me, you probably feel that exact same way. Culturally around us, we have come through one of the most difficult, contentious years of our nation's history. I won't say the most contentious. We've had lots of them, but it hasn't been a good year. And so maybe you're feeling the fracturing of society around you. I don't think we actually even have to go very deep when we start um, talking about these concepts of truth and that truth is relative to see just how often our truths come into conflict with other people because I've seen it in our members, in our community, the people around us, right? Think of, of how often um, families are now in conflict about their political persuasions, right? Unfriending people that you would claim to love that are blood relatives of yours, unfriending them on Facebook or simply ghosting them because they voted in a way that you wouldn't and didn't vote, right? 
We, we, we have gotten so contentious that we are willing to just cast people aside at, at the smallest, what we would at times think of the smallest infractions, right? Fractures within our relationships that we, don't make, we make absolutely no attempt to try to heal, that as soon as they show up, we say, nope, broken beyond, beyond repair, and we just cast it aside. And it's not just it. What we're doing is casting people aside. Not the abstract, but real living people. People that we loved and claimed to love us. Far too often, that's exactly what we're doing. And it's vastly encouraged by a culture, a cancel culture that is willing to simply take, um, at times, take small infractions or comments from periods in people's lives where maybe they didn't have the full information or they just made a mistake. We are so quick now to just cast people aside as irreparably damaged and broken. There is no room for restoration. There is no room for healing. There is no room for forgiveness any longer. That's the culture around us. But brothers and sisters, I fear that that's crept into our own interaction and view of our world as well. I'm guessing it has, right? We cast aside people that seem broken or that would dare to challenge what we feel is our truth, never to see them again, either directly confronting them or simply ghosting them and walking away, leaving them to wonder whatever happened. Instead, we turn and, and we binge watch another television show rather than doing the hard work of actually working through relationships that God has put into our lives. But transformative truth doesn't do that. Transformative truth doesn't cut and run when things get difficult. Transformative truth named Christ didn't do that. Jesus didn't run away. He didn't say these people are irreparably damaged and toss them to the side. He doesn't kick us to the curb. He doesn't say there is no hope for them. I'm going to move on with people that have far greater potential. Jesus looked at you and I and the brokenness of our lives, the sins we've committed and the sins that have been committed against us. And he said, for them, for you, I'll die. For you, I will sacrifice. That's what transformative truth is. Jesus willingly let himself be broken so that you would know restoration and be healed. He let himself be broken through death on the cross, abandonment by his God, so that you and I would know that we are forgiven and that we are loved eternally. And so transformative truth is restorative. At the heart of the Christian message is forgiveness and restoration. That's true of you personally, from your God above and your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But here's the really amazing thing is, it also must be true of us as believers interacting in this world. Here's what I mean by that. If there's anyone that can be restorative in the culture and the world around us, it ought to be us as Christians. Because you know how you have been restored by your Lord and Savior above. And that is not some abstraction. That is not something that comes and goes and changes. That is absolute truth. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again so your sins would be washed clean. The truths of Scripture, that there are realities that, and ways that God wants us to live our lives because it is not only beneficial for us as individuals, but beneficial for the people around us, right? 
truths of how we live our lives as families, truths about how God views our sexuality, truths about how God wants us to treat sin and, and, and hurt and harm of those against us and those things that we've done. These are the truths that are, op- that are open to us on the pages of Scripture these are the things that make up the substance of that transformative truth and makes us restorative. And so if there's anyone that can be restorative in this world of cancel culture and fractured relationships and everyone running to their separate corners, it ought to be us as Christians. And is that easy? Absolutely not, right? Because it means that we will have to admit fault and that we're not the masters of our own fate and that we are not, in fact, autonomous choosing selves, um, devoid of any implications with anyone else around us. It means that our sins that we commit actually have impact on the people around us. It means that we have to be willing to forgive, that when people hurt us and sin against us, that we are willing to forgive them for that. That we are willing to to allow our relationships, and not just allow, but work at our relationships to heal and to prosper and to have a future together. That's true of husbands and wives. That's true of families, parents and children and grandchildren. But what's true of us personally as believers also increasingly becomes true of the world around us in which we live. Our communities and the the neighbors that we live with and interact with. That's the beauty that Jesus brings in the face of Pilate, who believed there was no such thing as truth. Jesus was absolutely true to his core. Pages of scripture open that up to us as we see truth laid out for us, verse after verse, of God's wisdom for our lives, no matter when we live or what country or, or what Uh, what nation. The truths of Scripture and of Jesus Christ as the center of that Scripture remain the same, that we are forgiven. Transformative truth is that. It's personal. Jesus died for you, but it's also restorative. Your sins are forgiven, and we are able to bring that restoration, that forgiveness into our relationships and into the lives around us. So I don't know how Humpty Dumpty-ish you're feeling, whether you still feel as though you're at the top of the wall or at the bottom, but truth is not relative. It's real, and it had a name, Jesus Christ. Let that transformative truth, how personal and restorative it is, lead you in the coming week. Amen.